0: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 191. Today's episode is all about unique
1: strengths of women's brains. Women tended to ruminate more. Ruminate is a society that you play something in a loop. You keep thinking, why did I do that? I can't believe I said that, or I should have done that, or I didn't, and missed opportunity. And this ruminative cycle, this goes back to the neurochemistry. But for women, that was the big thing that was predicting the likelihood of them experiencing depressive symptoms. But research finds that changing one word, so instead of saying, yes, but I should have said this, yes, but I missed out on this, is just change the but to an and. Yes, and I had a chance to present my work in front of this team. Yes, and I had a chance to network. So changing that one word activates the language center of the brain, which is associated more with an optimism bias. And again, brain imaging research shows that the more we activate that, the easier it is that that part of the brain gets activated.
2: Turn up your frequency with Mind Love.
1: Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's
2: time to give your mind a little love with
1: your host, Melissa Monti.
0: Hello, my love. If you have not yet subscribed, please hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts are a really great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps more people find it and helps me get even better guests for you. Today, I'd like to read a review from a username that I cannot pronounce because it looks like they smashed their hand on the keyboard, but they say, Melissa offers grounded, real spiritual conversations. I love this podcast. Melissa is so transparent and vulnerable and brings guests on the show who are operating at a high frequency and depth of wisdom. Her own spiritual maturity is what makes the show so effective. Thank you so much for this review. Even though I couldn't pronounce your username, I am sending you so much love. This is oddly controversial these days, but research does suggest that there are differences in the brains of men and women. From birth, there's already a size difference. That has zero impact on intelligence, I might add. And beyond that, there are processing differences as well. I'm not here to have a biological gender argument. Actually, the research we're covering today is mostly in adult female brains, so it can be argued that a gendered world creates a gendered brain, but I'm not here to have this argument. I'm interested in how the differences that do show up in my brain scans can help me best navigate the world that we live in. Even right now in 2021, there are a lot of myths that still pervade regarding the way women think. Sometimes these pop up in your relationship, during an argument, or maybe the workplace or applying for a leadership position. When we women are faced with these, it doesn't just affect the opportunities that we're given, it also affects the way that we see ourselves like causing us to underestimate our own abilities. You know, things like women make emotional decisions when they're stressed. Women suffer from more unhappiness than men. Women have to act like men to be effective leaders. Women are empathetic to their own detriment. Some of these actually do hold some truth, but it's only part of the picture. Personally, I can be a little too empathetic. Like, way too empathetic. For example, the very first time I held a leadership position at a company, I could not handle reprimanding anyone. Actually, reprimanding isn't the right word. I don't really think any adult should be reprimanding another adult. But to paint a picture, I couldn't even handle correcting someone's mistake because I didn't want to feel someone else's discomfort. Turns out that was more of an empath thing than a woman thing. But understanding that I am an empath helped me to understand my default tendencies and figure out ways to work with them so that they helped me instead of hindering me. In the same way, the more we understand ourselves, whether that be our personalities, our genetic makeup, our brains, the more intention that we can bring to the way that we interact with the world. And as we'll learn in this episode, there are things that we can do to actually counteract our default brain patterns. And some of these things are so simple, you might even call them brain hacks. Our guest today is Dr. Tracy Alloway. She's an award-winning psychologist, professor, author, and TEDx speaker. She's published over 15 books and over 100 scientific articles on the brain and memory. She's also the author of Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You three key things we will learn are why it's important to both your personal and professional life to understand your unique brain makeup, the truth behind the myths of women's brains, and easy, actionable hacks to make your brain work for you. And now let's welcome Dr. Tracy Alloway to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Melissa.
0: So other than being a woman yourself, what got you interested in the difference between women's brains and the brains of you know, Neanderthal men. Just kidding.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not my words. Um, But I was um, really interested in the book, you know, just as a psychologist and a researcher, the more I would begin to look at different studies, I noticed that typically... The pattern of findings were communicated with a broad brushstroke, a kind of one size fits all. And I began to see nuances both coming out of my own research lab and others. And I was curious to know what kinds of patterns and differences we might experience um, as a result of maybe our neurochemistry or even our culture or socialization.
0: So why does it really matter that men's and women's brains are different? What does having that knowledge do in terms of like, how would it impact my life if I really understood my own brain?
1: I think that's a great question. First of all, Melissa, and for me, it's twofold. First of all, it creates awareness about how your brains actually work, which is exactly why I position the book as looking at Myths or statements that we either believe about ourselves or we're told. So things like, are women emotional decision makers? Do we have to act more masculine to be perceived as a good leader? Um, those kinds of things. So first of all, I think knowing how our brain works offers us that awareness. And this that leads to the second aspect of that, and that's an appreciation. Once you actually know how your brain is wired or how it's working, I think we can really lean into some of those strengths and really appreciate 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 what makes us unique, what makes us make the decisions that we do, and how to maximize and capitalize on exactly that.
0: It's interesting because, I mean, we've seen differences in men and women for so many years. I mean, way back when women had less rights than they do now, and we've made so much progress in terms of equality. But Mm -hmm. those myths still pervade, even though we're proving so many of them wrong year by year what do you think still holds them in place?
1: Uh, Sometimes it's culture. Um, So one of the things that I look at right off the bat was this idea that, women are emotional decision-makers. And so to do that, I looked at a kind of dilemma that is not quite popular and it's actually made it onto some uh, TV shows that some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's called the trolley dilemma. And in this dilemma, you have a trolley or a train hurtling at top speed towards you. And you can see it's going to harm five people. Now, as the observer, you can switch the tracks of the train and it would only harm one person, but you'd save the other five on the other track. And so I found that in my lab and other researchers have reported the same pattern is that women tend to get very upset. You know, they they don't want to make a decision. They in my lab some of their women were saying, Oh, this is too difficult. I just can't, I can't even imagine the situation. You know, I took things like physiological measures to look at their heart rate, sweat glands to look at the stress response. And we do know that in the brain there are two pathways when we come to make a decision. There's an emotional decision making pathway Typically relying on our amygdala, your brain's emotional center. And a second pathway is the cold decision making or the rational decision making, the more the prefrontal cortex located in the front of your brain. And so, you know, we had these two pathways, the hot and the cold decision-making pathway. And what I found was so fascinating, Melissa, was that women make decisions not because they're weak, but because we're motivated by a desire to protect. We don't want to cause harm. And as a result, we delay our decision-making, which is perceived as weak, but it's actually stemming from such a powerful, positive place. And that is to protect as many people as we can. And so I think knowing that in the first, instance can be really, uh, you know, powerful to know that it's not that we're emotional decision makers, but we are set up in a way to want to protect people. And that may be perceived as being emotional or weak as a result.
0: So that explains my procrastination with a lot of my decision making.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I could help.
0: (laughs) Well, one of the things you say in your book is that we can learn to turn on our rational brains in these moments. So if I'm presented with a decision where I can feel my emotions bubbling up, there's a way for me to switch to a part of my brain that will help me make a more rational decision. What are some of your tips
1: for actually turning that on? Yeah. And this is a fun tip and something we were exploring in my research lab. And that is to stick your hand in a bucket of ice. And the reason that works is because the ice acts as a physical stress. Now, this is just for one minute. So it's not that you're spending your whole day, you know, with your hand in a bucket of ice. But in that one minute, it raises your stress levels enough that it activates your flight response. And that means your heart decision-making center, your amygdala, is busy attending to this perceived physical stress, which, again, from the lab, we know that um, you know both men and women are reporting this as an an actual stressor for them. Their brains are busy attending to that, and it frees up a cold decision making center, a prefrontal cortex, to then kind of weigh the pros and cons and make a better decision. So, you know, let's say you're offered a position in a new city, your first thought is, well, I don't want to leave. My, my team, we've worked hard together, I don't wanna leave my boss kind of high and dry. And so you can see this mechanism of wanting to protect, not wanting to cause harm, kicking in right away. And sometimes it's hard to dissociate that emotional decision-making because we're driven to protect. And so in that instance, if you want to take a different perspective and maybe look at it from how it could benefit you professionally, what would this job offer you, Sticking your hand in a bucket of ice can switch your decision-making pathway from a hot decision to a cold decision-making.
0: That makes a lot of sense, but I feel like I would then start procrastinating to do no harm to my hand.
1: (laughs) I hate the cold. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that before, Melissa.
0: (laughs) I'm like, but can I just get cozy instead? Can I still be (laughs) rational while I'm
1: cozy? Well, Well, yeah, there is another uh, strategy that I also found in my lab. And if you, you know, if ice isn't quite doing it for you, you can induce a cognitive stress. by counting backwards from 100, but in sixes, so you'd go, you know, 194, 88, and it, it sounds, you know, easy enough. But actually, in our lab, we found that it was quite stressful for our participants. And also, you know, when I when I give talks and I'm, I'm speaking and I do this activity, and you can just hear the groans when I ask people to do this, they think, "Oh no, I, I can't, I can't do mental math right now." And so it is a small, acute level of stress that's enough to switch that decision-making pathway in your brain.
0: Oh, that would work for me. But also that, all I could think about is how much that kind of shows our privilege where our biggest stress of the day is counting backwards in sixes. (laughs) 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 Well, let's talk about women, how women evaluate risk, because I know that uh, there's a discrepancy between the way men evaluate risks and, and women evaluate risks. What are the differences between
1: the genders there? Yeah, so here, this is very interesting, kind of circling back to your question earlier about why do we still have these myths? And and one of the myths that I found, even that researchers would tackle right up front, was that women take fewer risks than men, and whether or not this was true. So typically, a lot of the research on risky behavior and And risk, you know, typically is defined in the literature as an activity that could cause harm, could have negative consequences, typically physical consequences. And so a lot of the research on risk-taking has focused on physical risk, you know, whether it's driving or jumping out of planes and so on. And indeed, women do report taking fewer of those kinds of risks. But that's because a lot of times the research doesn't look at Actually, everyday risks, the risks that matter in our lives, like leaving a job, moving to a new city, being willing to move your family, you know, maybe leaving your job to become an entrepreneur and pursuing a passion because you feel so strongly about that. Those kinds of risks that we do actually take on a daily basis, not necessarily jumping out of a plane, which may be a one-off risky behavior. And here, researchers refer to what is called the risk return framework, where for women especially... We evaluate the risk versus the return. In other words, what are you getting from making that risky decision, looking at an emotional response? So for women especially, they look to see if they get a positive response. So, you know, I uh, I was looking at Spartan Racing in the chapter as well as a few other things. And a big thing that I found is that if you feel you're getting a positive response, positive emotion from it. It's almost like we don't even view that decision as a risky decision. And interestingly, I was speaking to a female entrepreneur and as we were talking about this exact topic, she she just stopped for a moment and she said, it's crazy that you said that because when I was younger, I did exactly that. I gave up my job in one city, took my small family, moved across the, the country, you know, didn't have a home, all I did was have school set up for the kids and just started over from fresh. And I never even thought it was a risk because for me, there was such a big, positive emotional payoff. And so women tend to look at the emotional payoff, you know, positive emotional payoff as a way to evaluate risk. And that may be why we still have this misperception that women take fewer risks because a lot of times women don't even view that decision as a risky decision Because they're so focused on that positive return, emotional return from it.
0: When I was reading that section of your book, I actually was thinking, well, this doesn't really explain my 20s. I swear every decision I made in my 20s was (laughs) risky, including getting certified in skydiving. But then I was actually thinking about, well, what were my motivations there? And- I was really lost in my 20s. I was trying not to feel my feelings and trying to feel everything else. And I think that was the payoff for me. That and then also uh, the guys I was hanging out with at the time, as silly as this sounds, thought I was awesome for getting <laughs> certified in skydiving. And I think that was enough for me at the
1: time. Of course, and that's a huge emotional, you know, positive emotional payoff as well. And so uh, it sounds like it was worth the risk. Uh, I'm not so sure.
0: (laughs) At the time, it felt like it was. But looking back, you know, I could have done that in a better way. But (laughs) (laughs) before we totally expand our minds, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you just get a little inspiration to set your tone for the day and give you something positive to focus on. Think of it like a short note from your higher self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a super powerful 30-minute affirmation meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777.
2: I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A., Then I found Aloe Moves, and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content, since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher-focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? (laughs) They have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, HIIT classes, or Reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Allo Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to AlloMoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30 day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's AlloMoves.com code MINDLOVE. AlloMoves.com code MINDLOVE.
0: So next let's talk about romance because women, it's, we always get this rap for like wanting to connect and bond and they're the ones that get clingy too fast. But, uh, you have found that we actually, women and men both crave bonding in relationships, but what actually impacts that?
1: Yeah, this is one of the adult behaviors that actually we can trace back to childhood. And I know, you know, as a licensed psychologist, I do often get clients talking about their childhood, but this is one where there's so much science and research behind the fact that our, bonds that we form right from infancy can set the stage and create a framework for how we then act and respond in our romantic attachments and so researchers talk about attachment theory whether we have a secure attachment you know do you find it easy to get along with others you're comfortable depending on them having them depend on you and so on that would be very characteristic of a secure attached person Another type of attachment style is someone who may feel uncomfortable getting close to others, having difficulty trusting people and even wanting to depend on them. And they feel nervous, you know, about creating intimacy and tend to kind of create excuses, maybe work related or, you know, other excuses to then create a distance. So you've got this push and pull of needing to bond, but feeling worried when that becomes too much for them. And that uh, is very uh, characteristic of an avoidant attachment style. And typically in that case, the parent or the caregiver for the child was very likely to be aloof or distant, and did not provide love or affection or care on a consistent basis. And so the child learns this avoided where I do need this, I do need affection and care, but what if I don't get it? So I'll pull away as soon as I get it because it may not be consistently provided. Um, and the, the final, broadly speaking, attachment style is an anxious attachment style. These are, you know, the, the individuals that would maybe. cling on and unfortunately what tends to happen is the avoidant and the anxious attachment style tend to seek each other out because that is the pattern that they're used to seeing in their their caregivers and so you can imagine the cycle where when the avoidant person pulls away the anxious individual clings or or reaches out even more needing that validation needing that affection which then pushes the avoidant personality away so this is You know, this is something upon reflection that as adults, we can begin to think about how we seek out people that we bond with, that we find attached to. And the great news is, is that it's not fixed. You know, it's not anything that's hardwired. Our attachment style is easily one that we can unlearn, relearn and and readjust. So which is, I think, very encouraging to know.
0: Yeah, that really takes the pressure off of me. This is something that is super intriguing to me because I just had a baby that's three months old right now. And so I am currently swimming in all the knowledge of like, well, what is my method or my philosophy? Everything's a philosophy these days. What's my philosophy on sleep? And what kind of attachment is that going to create in my child? Or how often should I wear my baby? Or should he be in the bassinet? All these things. And just recently, I actually decided to just give myself a break and, mm-hmm. uh, and realize that my, style is a little bit more attachment. I love wearing my baby. It's my first baby. It's like my favorite yeah. thing. It works better with my schedule, but yeah. I have been nervous. Like, well, what kind of attachment style is this going to create? And uh, I just want to make sure I'm doing the best for my baby. But what it sounds like from your research is a lot of these arguments that us parents end up having like, oh my gosh, you're wearing your baby too much or <laughs> you're picking them up too much. Right. That's not the big thing. It's just, do- no. we all have different styles. It's just like if you love the, your baby and you yes. at, respond to
1: his needs, yes, exactly. And and I think that's you know almost like the irony that that the fact that these debates exist indicates that the parent loves their child so much that they're so invested in finding the best approach. When really the fact that they're even there exploring different options demonstrates how much care and consistent affection they want to provide for their child. So it's already a great start for any parent.
0: So this next one, it it was intriguing to me as well, because I actually just did an episode on why we all lie. And Mm -hmm. you explored why that women lie for different reasons than men. What Mm -hmm. do you find is the motivation between either gender lying and how is it different for women?
1: Sure. So here, you know, we tend to think of lies broadly as white lies or bigger lies or omissions versus commissions, you know, do you not tell some uh, piece of information or do you actually intentionally give someone false information? And I just look at lying from a different perspective, again, research driven, but the categories here from a research perspective is what researchers call pro-social versus anti-social lying. So not You know, big versus small lies, intentional versus, you know, cover-ups and whatnot. But anti-social lies refer to the fact that you lie to protect yourself. So if you imagine a young child, you know, did, did you eat the cookie? Crumbs all over the face. Nope, no, I didn't. You know, lying to protect themselves. They don't want to, you know, get punished or time out or anything like that. Pro-social lies are when you lie to protect someone else. So did you see your sister or brother eat the cookie? And if they lie, at that point, they're lying to protect someone. And so it's a different way to think about uh, lying or to conceptualize lying. And here, the research is primarily focused on adults. But I took that back into childhood, looking at three, four, five-year-olds and found very similar patterns. That girls would be more likely to lie to protect someone else. And boys would be more likely to lie to protect themselves. And we see the same thing in adults. And, you know, I was curious to see how far back we go. And we see that this seems to be something from a very early point in our life, uh, lifespan that we're already practicing as women. We already begin to be other minded, uh, to think about the other person's feelings and then go as far as to lie to protect them. So in my research lab, I had a very fun, simple game where uh, they had little paper bowls and they had to make a basket and they were set up for failure they were asked to stand so far back from the basket that it was very unlikely that they would be successful. And we purposefully turned our back and said, oh, we can't see you, just play the game don't, you know, don't move up from the line and try not to pick up the same ball and pick it in the basket, put it, you know, in the basket, but actually throw it in if you can and so on. And we tried to incentivize them by offering a prize if they make so many baskets. And so both our boys and girls did this and we found, you know, the boys would be more likely to lie and say, oh yes, I made eight out of 10 baskets. But when, then we had another situation where we had one of our researchers, but, you know, the children didn't know that the researcher was one of the team. Um, the researcher would come in and would intentionally cheat. You know, would pick up the paper ball, walk over, plop it in the basket, jump over the line, so they could get a little closer, and so on. And when the children were asked, "Did that? You know, did that adult cheat when they made those baskets?" and uh, the girls were more likely to lie to protect the the adult, the researcher.
0: I'm thinking back to when I was a child, and I feel like. I wouldn't have landed in the same category as the the women. I probably wouldn't have helped other people. And this sounds horrible. I'm not proud of my past self, but I feel like I might have lied to say I got more. Did you find any information about outliers like that? Like, what does it say about that person? Or is, is that just how life works? There's always the outliers.
1: Yes. I mean, I think if you think of, you know, the distribution, the patterns of distribution, the majority of us fall in the average. And then, of course, we have outliers. But I did find in a, in a different study that children, and again, this has been replicated with adults as well, that who are good liars tend to have higher intelligence. So, of course, if you think of the act of lying, we have to keep in mind so many different strands of information. You have to think of what you actually did what you want to hide, what you want to share, what you think the other person knows and what you think they don't know and kind of weave these different strands together. And um, I published a piece of research looking at seven-year-olds and found that at that young age, the better they were at kind of covering up their tells, if you will, and even presenting themselves very confidently, the higher their levels of intelligence were. So, you know, it may well be that... um, Melissa, you were a highly intelligent child that was able to to consider all of these different factors in that situation. I can hear tiny
0: me now. I'm sorry (laughs) I lied, but I'm just smarter than you. (laughs) (laughs) You had talked about a way that our amygdalas can be activated to sort of help keep us truthful, if I got that right. What is the research there?
1: Yep. So again, our amygdala is our brain's emotional center. You'll remember that from, you know, us talking about uh, risky decisions and the hot decision-making center. So our amygdala is one of the, uh, you know, parts of the brain that's, that's formed very early on, and it is our emotional response. Uh, it's our stress response. It's, you know, when you get angry, that's what's firing and so on. But what happens when you're telling a lie is that brain imaging studies have found that the amygdala is like a watchdog in a sense that it's firing. It's it's the one that's making you feel bad. That's making you think, really, I shouldn't be doing this. This doesn't feel right. I should probably tell the truth. That's your amygdala kicking in to let you know this is not a good thing you should be doing. Um, and this Feeling the amygdala's response starts dissipating the more and more you lie. So again, it's it's almost like feeling desensitized. The the more lies you tell around a particular topic, your amygdala adapts in a way and becomes less sensitive to the guilt or the deception that you are uh, presenting.
0: So the next uh, part of your research that I find super helpful because. I think every field is a field that can benefit from creativity. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, I'm not creative, but they don't realize that they're just using their creativity in different ways. And so I'm often intrigued by ways that I can unlock that even more, whether it's little exercises or or even just knowing how my brain works so that I can enhance my own levels of creativity. What have you found in the differences of men and women? And how can women
1: uh, boost that part of, their abilities. Yeah that's a great question and I think creativity is a really interesting one it's it happens when we're not trying and it sounds so cliche but that's exactly what's happening in the brain When we are engaging in a creative process, we're activating a a, a kind of network in the brain that's called the default mode. And scientists call this your idle state. So it's almost like the car's running, but you're not actually going anywhere, which is why, you know, you may wonder, why did that idea come to me when I was cooking and not actually doing that project of task that I had on my mind and just spent weeks? And then it was when I was doing something completely unrelated, that it all sort of came to me. And that's the idle state, um, the kind of uh, default mode that you're, you're, it's sort of percolating in the background when it kicks in. So actually the best way to unlock creativity is by not directly thinking about the project. And so researchers find that you actually want to step away from the idea, whether it's doing an activity that you like that is automatic. Some people like running. You know, I mentioned cooking. You know, we've all heard that Eureka story where um, it's sort of from the bathtub, this this brilliant idea pops into your head. But the point is that it's in your brain's idle state that the creative process actually begins. Um, another thing that you can do is encourage divergent thinking. So playing sort of fun games where you encourage yourself to think in novel or creative ways. And this is actually something that I do. Uh, I'm a professor at a university and I actually, we talk about this process with my college students. And one of the things we do is we have a word like pencil and we try to think of as many original and unique uses or functions for a pencil. So maybe a hair tie, maybe a baby or if you are, you know, if you had a little toy and put them in a pool as a boat. So as many original or creative ideas, is just a quick, fun way to get your brain into thinking in that divergent and creative way. So is that different from the
0: way that men, for example, boost their creativity?
2: If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. Estro Control is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way estro control eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. Estrocontrol was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month totally not fair Estrocontrol is made specifically for women who are pre-menopausal so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet and in fact it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and pms can turn into a beast i have been relearning myself postpartum i just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and i forgot how wild these hormone changes can be i wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings, and Estra control is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... risk free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order.
0: So is that different from the way
1: that men, for example, boost their creativity? Yeah, that's a great question, Melissa. So typically when a male brain is being creative, brain imaging finds that it tends to be localized. And by that, I mean, if you're working on a visual problem, the visual regions of the brain tend to be activated. In contrast for women, there's a more general activation pattern. So women are drawing from all different parts of the brain, not just their visual center. They could be drawing from their language center, maybe their sense of smell, something that's kind of kicking in and and bringing in an idea from a a different uh, sense location in the brain. So there tends to be a more general activation, which is why you know, the, the fun games that we talked about, divergent thinking, can be really useful. You know, kind of encouraging your brain to draw knowledge from all different parts of the brain that we don't usually try to tie together.
0: So say there was a group of men and women, whether maybe somebody has a group of employees that they're working on a project, or maybe you're just in a school group they're trying to come up with ideas to create like an app or something like that would it be helpful to give the men and the women different tasks to come up with the idea
1: and if so like how would you split that up if that makes sense yeah, not necessarily give them a different idea, but recognize that if you direct the men to think about, say, uh, think of an app that is visually based, that, that they will activate the parts of the brain associated with that. Or let's say, I need an app that is focusing more on uh, some, someone talking about their feelings, They're going to access that part of the brain, um, whereas women would probably give you a little bit more diverse responses. So really, the question here as the facilitator is, how directed do you want to be? So if you want a specific type of app, giving the male brain some direction would mean that you're going to activate that local um, knowledge, if you will, in creativity. But for women, they may draw in in a lot more diverse regions of the brain and you know, it depends really what you want from that project. Do you want it only centered on one idea or do you want a more generalist approach?
0: That makes sense because even in my relationship with my husband, I'll find that when we're brainstorming or discussing things that so often I'll be pulling knowledge from like every area of my life. Like I might be building my website and I'm like, well, what I learned about my website from raising my baby. (laughs) Whereas he's like, how are you connecting these things that are so different? Uh, But if you give him a task, like how do you just make this page better? He can go so deep into figuring out what and why should be on it.
1: Yeah, which is a skill too. And that's why, you know, knowing what you want out of the project is a helpful first start.
0: So this next area is is probably very helpful to a lot of people because it's been such a hard year and depression levels are up so much. And Mm -hmm. one of the myths that you talk about is that women are more susceptible to depression than men. What Uh is true about that and what isn't?
1: Yeah, so certainly, of course, you know, the numbers... It is true that women report experiencing depression more than men, and in part it could be that they are aware, they're more willing to seek help and express this need and so on. But there is also a neurochemical part of it in that the female brain um, does have three times more receptors associated with stress and depression. So in a sense, it's we tend to focus on some of these things. That doesn't mean we can't change, and none of these ideas are deterministic, so that that's what I think is also so exciting, is that there is such a plasticity to how we use our brain, how we engage our brain, that it's not fixed uh, as a result, but it is, again, here's where the awareness matters, because I was able to conduct a large scale study, and I was looking at precursors in a non-clinical population, so what researchers call a community sample, so a kind of everyday population, and I was looking at what happens before someone reports feeling these types of depressive symptomology? And I find that it was very different for men and women. For men, a buffer or something that protects them against experiencing these depressive symptoms is having a sense of agency. Feeling like they can uh, change something, be in control of something, moderate something that they're an agent in some way in the situation. For women, it was a little different. It was almost like an anti-buffer. Women um, tended to ruminate more, ruminate a society that you play something in a loop. You keep thinking, why did I do that? I can't believe I said that, or I should have done that, or I didn't, and missed opportunity. And this ruminative cycle, this goes back to the neurochemistry. But for women, that was the big thing that was predicting the likelihood of them experiencing depressive symptoms. And so, you know, at the second half of that chapter, especially I talk about ways in which we can overturn that loop and kind of rewire the brain, especially when it comes to that ruminative loop.
0: I actually interviewed this guy in the beginning of my podcasting journey that was worth like $50 million. And I, I was like, I asked him a question about his past and he said, I don't talk about my past. I only talk about the future. Next question. (laughs) I was like, wow, well, that's one way to make sure your past doesn't hold you back. But uh, I'm like, so different for me. I've spent uh, years of my life accumulatively thinking about my past, but I know that's not the case for everybody. I know my husband, uh, he was on American Ninja Warrior and he made a mistake, his toe touched the water and he ruminated on that for like years. And so I'm wondering when, when you find in your research that like, okay, most women ruminate more, but here are some of the outliers. Does that mean they have more feminine tendencies or, or does it mean nothing at all?
1: Um, It it could be just a high stakes situation. And so the way to counter that is even changing one word Uh, on a daily basis. Obviously, the situation you described with American Ninja is high stakes and not a, a daily event where it's the type of ruminative cycle that women engage in is daily. So, you know, you could be thinking about the job interview and then what a conversation in the morning. And it's just, they all sort of Accumulate over time and feel like a heavy weight on us rather than just a single episode that is, you know, as you are describing here. But research finds that changing one word, so instead of saying, yes, but I should have said this, or, yes, but I missed out on this, is just change the but to an and. Yes, and I had a chance to present my work in front of uh, this team. Yes, and I had a chance to network. Yes, and I had a chance to do that. So changing that one word activates the language center of the brain, which is associated more with an optimism bias. And um, again, brain imaging research shows that the more we activate that, the more easier it is that that part of the brain gets activated. So in other words, it's like a you know building a muscle in a sense that the more you do it the more automatic that response becomes rather than that ruminative cycle so simply by saying yes and this happened and i'm grateful for it yes and strengthens that optimism or gratitude muscle in the brain or area in the brain so that it does become an automatic response
0: When I first moved to LA, I took an improv class and that's one of the games that you play because when you're on an improv stage with somebody, the whole premise is about basically creating a reality out of thin air and at building on top of that with the other people that you're playing with. And so if somebody said like, all of a sudden started acting like they're at a coffee shop and then the other person shot that down, then that's not yes anding what they were saying. And... I was reminded of that in a public speaking course that I took a couple of years ago. And it's something that I've been very intentional about ever since. And I've noticed that not only does it open my mindset and change the way that I view things that have happened in the past, but it actually enhances conversations as well. Because uh, you're, co- you're constantly... Affirming the other person's reality, even if it doesn't really match your own. You're like, yes, and, and then you kind of give your own experience. So that way, because, you know, truth and reality is subjective to people. And so, so often we end up in these dumb little disagreements and conversations of things that don't matter when really the truth is, is that both people are saying is true. And so I feel like that yes and trick is helpful in so many areas across the board.
1: I really like that. I haven't heard that in the context of improv, but I, I really like that. Thanks for sharing that, Melissa.
0: So the next area of your research is about generosity, which I am very intrigued about because I grew up an only child. And I remember as a child, like hearing that I didn't know how to share, which maybe I didn't, but at the same time I was like five mm-hmm. and that started, I feel like that affected the way I interacted with people socially more than my natural tendencies were. So what have you found about uh, generosity and the way that, what motivates women to be generous versus men?
1: Uh, that that was really interesting too. So first of all, the truth there is that women are just as generous as men. It's not that one, one party is more or less generous than the other, but women are generous more social reasons. So when they feel like they would be helping someone. Uh, so again, this idea of that pro-social behavior uh, comes into play here for women as well. And in part, it has to do with a part of the brain called mirror neurons. And Mirror neurons, like the name suggests, are the part in the brain that mirror someone else's feelings or emotions. And that's the basis for empathy. So if someone is saying, I feel really sad today, you know, and or oh, I feel really happy today, it's our mirror neurons that reflect that, and we can we can empathize, we can say, "Oh, well, that's great. Tell me a little bit more about what made you happy, and so on. And so it's that sense, those sense of mirroring that Motivates women to give or to be more generous.
0: So, say you are a woman that doesn't feel that you're often generous, but it's something that you want to work on. You almost consider it your own personal character flaw. What are some tricks to encourage that part of your brain to open up a little bit to become more generous?
1: Yep. So in my own research lab, one of the things we were looking at is a a very similar question to what you just posed, Melissa. And one way that we found women would be more likely to be generous if they felt a sense of belonging or community. So in other words, you know, if someone they weren't driven by a cause, they were driven by if that cause reflected a community that they identified with. And and that's a big difference. So if you can find a group or a cause that is strongly personal, then women are more likely to feel generous to that. So again, feeling connected plays an important role in generosity for women.
0: Coming back to the empathy aspect of it, that's something that often people look at as a downside, especially in professional environments like, oh, women can't be good leaders because they have too much empathy or what have you found in that area and how can you make sure that your empathy isn't hindering your job?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, some researchers have actually coined a phrase called ruinous empathy, exactly as you just uh, articulated, that you can have too much empathy and that can prevent you from maybe providing constructive support to a team member because you're thinking, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I know they work really hard. And that's a kind of ruinous empathy. And so a way to uh, moderate that is, first of all, instead of making it personal like you need to fix this or you didn't do a good job is to focus on the project. The project could be improved by adding this or, uh, you know, so focus, dissociate the person from the target or the goal of the project. And that's one way in which you can circumvent feeling an, an overabundance or a sense of ruinous empathy that uh, some women do sometimes struggle with in the workplace.
0: So. After doing so much research to kind of figure out the differences between men and women's brains, how has that changed the way that you view yourself and your own brain and the way you work since learning all of this?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I think a, a couple of takeaways, even for myself, was from the chapter on the happy brain, knowing how to be able to rewire my brain and understand my emotions and in everyday interactions have made such a huge difference for me. So I certainly, on a daily basis, practice the yes and and practice gratitude and, you know, work on making these responses automatic so that I don't fall in a ruminative loop and just being intentional and mindful when I do and knowing how to step out of that quicker than I was in the past. Um, The second takeaway for me that was really important was looking at the leadership uh, side of things. And again, the misperception is that, you know, do we have to adopt what these sort of stereotypical male traits to be a good leader and finding out that uh, from research my own as well as other labs is that leadership is a style, not a trait. In other words, we adopt a style that is best suited for a situation. Maybe in some cases we need to be goal-oriented. Maybe in other cases we need to be more community-building and more team-focused. And just that recognition, that awareness that we can adapt based on the situation, we don't have to find just one fixed way of leadership to be effective leaders, uh, made a big difference for me as well.
0: The final question I have, it's almost a little controversial because we're living in this time where genders are being more blurred than ever. But I'm curious for people out there that are listening that might feel a little bit more gender neutral or or somewhere in, in the middle, how can they use this research to still gain a better understanding of the way their own minds work?
1: That's such a great question, Melissa. And you know one that I've certainly given a lot of thought to. And I think starting with this idea of the myths. We all believe myths about ourselves, whether they're gender-driven, socially-driven, culturally-driven. I'm, you know, a, a female that grew up in Malaysia and then moved to the U.S. I lived in the U.K. So there are lots of cultural and social myths that have followed me along the way. And I think really what I would like the reader to, first of all, is have that awareness. What is something that you are holding on to as a myth and be able to explore how you can maximize your strengths and how we actually approach situations, whether it's risk, whether it's happiness, whether it's bonding, leadership, and so on. So I think that's really the message of the book is that even when it comes to the brain, it's not hardwired. There is a sense of plasticity, plasticity. and the goal for each of us is to have that awareness for how you know, what might what might be the myths that are holding us back from maximizing our strengths and, and leaning into the strengths? And how can we uh, use these little tricks of the brain, whether it's changing a word, whether it's, you know, understanding our attachment style and how we can maximize the way in which we interact and bond with people around us.
0: I love that answer. And even as I was reading through the book, there were certain things where I'm like, well, my brain falls more in the man side for this one, and sure. and that didn't feel polarizing to me, or it didn't feel like I was suddenly left out of the research. I was just like, okay, well, if my brain feels like it relates more over here in this area, then I'm going to use these tips, you know. And so, uh, thank you for addressing that. Thank you so
1: much, Melissa.
0: And for listeners that are interested in learning more about the way that their brains work or some of your research and the differences of it all, which is just so interesting to me, where is the best place for them
1: to connect with you online? Um, I have a website, tracyalloway.com. I'd love for them to come by. I have lots of video resources there. I'm also on social media. Dr. Uh, That's Dr. Tracy Alloway on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'd love to be able to connect with your listeners there as well.
0: All the links mentioned in this episode will be at mindlove.com 191, including the link to Dr. Tracy Alloway's book. And if you do click from that link, it does provide a small amount of affiliate income for Mind Love, so it would be greatly appreciated. Your challenge for this week is to pick one of these little hacks that resonated the most to you and try to use it throughout the week. The more you use it in this one week period, the more likely you are to take it with you long term. So I am obviously taking the ones about making emotional decisions when stressed. Lately, I can feel myself getting into fight or flight even more often, and I think maybe it has something to do with being a new mom or I don't know. Well, I love the idea of my hand in ice water, although I do tend to not like the cold. So the counting backwards for me is something that I can do no matter where I am without any extra tools. So the next time I feel stressed or getting into fight or flight, I'm going to take a deep breath, which is a good practice anyways, and count backwards in increments of six. And we'll see how it goes. I'd love to know which one works best for you. So reach out to me at mindlovemelissa. If you want to support the show even more, go to mindlove.com slash premium to join our exclusive community. You get extra episodes, monthly meditations, calls with me, a bunch of other goodies. It's a lot of fun and it's just a really great way to support the show that you love the most. I am not making an assumption there, I am manifesting. (laughs) Another great way to support the show that is a win-win for everybody is to support one of my amazing sponsors, I have vetted all of these companies. I personally love and use them. And I am not just saying this. I actually say no to a lot of different sponsors. And I don't make extra money based on how many purchases are made. It just encourages them to sponsor this show for longer. So these are really authentic endorsements that I make for my sponsors. I love them all. And finally, thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week.